0: Good morning, everybody. So um, today we're going to be thinking about uh, a question. Uh, And um, the question that we are going to be spending some time with uh, is the question, why? Okay. Um, Pretty much, I think that when we look at the hardest questions we're going to be asked and the hardest questions we do ask of other people, it usually starts with the word, why? Right? Uh, there's, There's what questions. There's how questions, when questions, where questions, not that all of those are easy, but a lot of those you can answer more by observation. Why is a totally different question because you have to get into the motivation or something, or you have to really understand something to be able to understand why. If somebody asks you a question that starts with why and you can answer it, you've got to understand how it really works, right? Um, Example. Uh, I can observe and I know what happens when you apply heat to water okay it boils that's a very important thing in my household my wife is british and boiling water i learned early on was a key to a successful marriage for us because she is a hot tea drinker which means that i am now a hot tea drinker after being married for for 20 years and uh and it and regardless of the time one of the, my favorite moments with Beth was her first time she ordered tea in america uh, we were engaged 20 years ago. She was visiting for the first time. And uh, she asked for tea at lunch. And the woman at the restaurant just like, sweet or unsweet? And she had no idea what to respond to that. <laughs> and she, she was, like, just said, unsweet. And then when they brought it with ice cubes floating in it, she just stared at it for like 20 seconds. And then she goes, what is that? And I was like, well, that's, that's, and, and it's an important thing that I know how to boil. I know what happens when you, uh, when you put heat with water, because, uh, in our marriage, that's the key to happiness, right? Uh, if I mess up two important things, number one is to be able to say, I'm sorry. And the second is to put the kettle on. Uh, and, and, and those are key components to marital bliss in our family, right? I can tell you what happens when you apply heat to water. I don't really understand why it happens to water. Why water boils? But there are people who do. And there were people that when they saw things like that, it was like, I want to understand why this is. I don't want to just like know that it happens. I want to know why. And when they understood why, they had to get into how molecules work and how matter is formed. And as they uh, uh, apply heat or apply cool or different temperatures to different substances, things happen. And that has led to all kinds of scientific discoveries that benefit our world. And the reason that those people can do that is they have this curiosity to go, I don't just want to observe what happens or even understand how it happens. I want to know why it happens because why gets at a deeper meaning of things, right? You see that in faith. One of the most important questions that any of us will ever ask in faith, the most important questions really often start with that word, why? Why does God allow this to happen? Why Would God seem to be absent from my life with all that's going on right now? Why do bad things happen to good people? You see, those are different than like, how does God work, or when does God show up? Why forces us to really wrestle in those really hard questions of faith with the very nature of who is God, and how does God work? And what do we understand about God? And what do we kind of like about God and not? And what are the things that when we look at God, we kind of go, I wonder if that's really real? Can I believe in God if that's happening? Why are the disturbing questions of faith? But if you don't wrestle with them, your faith is never going to be strong. Struggle in the why questions leads to a deeper, deeper faith because you have to wrestle with the nature of God in it. It's true in leadership. All of you are called to be leaders. We've talked about this before, whether you, wherever you live, work, and play. Some of you called to do it in, in, in kind of ways at work, or maybe it feels more public. Some of you have a title that says you're a leader. Uh, some of you might do this in quieter ways in your neighborhood, or, or with your children, or uh, with your friends, or in your small group, or uh, someone who does this. And, and yet all of us are called to be leaders. One of the most important things in leadership is to be able to teach why we do the things we do. Ineffective leaders are people who often just say what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. But the inspiring ones are the ones who start with the question, why? Here's why this is important. Here's why we want to change things. And if you can teach the why, if you can talk about the motivation behind it, if you can talk about the reasoning behind it, it doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with you, but it does mean that you're going to have a much better chance of effectively uh, altering and impacting the world around us. Why is a centrally important question in all of our lives. It causes us to go deeper. And when we are asked the question, why, it forces us to really think about our answers. Answers. Why is so critical, and it's that question that we're going to spend some time sitting in today as people of faith. We're going to ask the question why about one of your favorite and my favorite subjects to talk about in faith and in life in general, and that is how we're supposed to handle our money and our finances and our possessions. And I'm aware that some of you have given a look to the person next to you going, I told you we should have skipped church today. I told you we should have just gone to brunch. But I want you to know that we're going to be able to sit in the why question of this today because I am not about to ask you to give to anything. There is no capital campaign being announced. There's no matching gift for a mission partner. There's no pledge cards that are about to be sent out. There's no sense that the church is in trouble financially and the financial people are going, you need to talk about money because we're in trouble as we go into the summer. We're doing well financially. We're healthy in how things are going. But we are going to talk about it because you cannot read the Bible and not see that there is a a bind that is inescapable between our spiritual lives and our financial lives. You cannot escape it. And no matter who you are, or how much money you make, or how much money you think you should make, or how much money you plan to make someday, no matter whether you're 13 or 30 or 90, this applies to us. And money is both a litmus test, and how we handle it, of our spiritual health. And the Bible's very clear about that. And it's also a catalyst to spiritual growth. It's a practical way of going, all right, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. Not just with my feelings, but I'm actually going to trust you as I give away. Okay? But I hope we can sit in the why question because it's actually the more important question of why faith and money are so inextricably tied together if I can tell you from the beginning this is not a setup to ask you for anything. So just listen. Listen think, experience as we look at the question of why is this such a big deal, okay? All right, I I did my best to try to like open this up. All right, so the scripture passage we're looking at today as we continue in this series looking at the birth of the church in the book of Acts uh, comes from Acts chapter 4 starting in verse 32 and I invite you to just read, uh, listen, uh, pray through God's word to us all today. This is what Luke writes. He says, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyrus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would meet us in this place, and no matter who we are, what opinions we have, what doubts we have, what thoughts we have, what beliefs we have, That we would encounter you, the living God, this morning right here in our midst, and you would speak your truth to all of us, individually and corporately. Change us that we might believe and live out your good news in our lives this day and this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What I'm going to do, Derek, is I want to bring that first slide up, the first uh, part, and just leave it up for um, the rest of uh, uh, the time, because this this passage, and specifically these early verses, are what I want us to, to pay attention to. Because one of the things, and we've talked about this before as the backdrop of this series, this is why we're talking about this series, is that there is something amazing that was taking place in the New Testament church. There was something amazing that was changing the lives of all kinds of people in that day and age. When you think about the fact that the church has never really experienced any kind of dynamic time like we read about in the book of Acts and afterwards in the early centuries of the church, because Christianity at this point is this outlawed little sect of Judaism that is localized to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is in Israel, which has no strategic value in part of the Roman empire. It was not a big place that they had a big goal of conquering, but they needed to to conquer it in order to... be on trading routes to more valuable parts of the world. So the Romans had come in, they had conquered uh, Jerusalem, and you've got this little outlawed sect of a native religion in the midst of the vastness of the Roman Empire, and in less than 300 years, the entire Roman Empire became Christian-believing. Something happened to that, and they had no 10-year strategic plan of how it was going to get there. They didn't have consultants that could come in and tell them what they were supposed to do. They didn't do any of the stuff that churches so often go to, but what they had was this life that they were living, and as they were living it, the people around them just kind of found it irresistible. They just sort of kept coming. It's like, what is going on with those people? And it was just drawing, folks, to this life. And part of the life, and we see this in Acts chapter 2, we see it in Acts chapter 4 here, we're going to see it going forward, is one of the things that made them distinct was the way they handled their money, the way they handled their possessions. It made them different. It's what we call here at Covenant when we read about this extravagant generosity, right? And you might be filled with questions as you read this. Like It's like how, like, what were they thinking? living this way, or how did they survive or provide for their families in this? Like, these are all practical questions there, but what I want to sit with today when we read this passage is the why question. Why were they doing it? If we can get at the why, we're going to get at the deeper stuff going on, and part of the reason that many of us are going, I can't believe we're talking about this in church, it's June, why are we going to, like, let's talk about a why question, why are you choosing to talk about this today? A lot of the reason we don't like it is because the church has mistaught the why through the years. Now, the other reason is because we just like being in control of our money and don't like people telling us what to do. And that's a you thing. That's not a church thing. That's a me thing. I like that. I just kind of like, it's just my money and I want to go on vacation where I want to go. Right? You've got to own that part of it. I've got to own that part of it. And because I'm a pastor, I also get to own the other part of it which is that I also don't like people telling me what to do with my money and I'm a part of the church that has mistaught this many times through the years so I'm very special today uh, in this. The church has taught the why in various ways that have been wrong. For example, The first church I ever worked in as an associate pastor just out of seminary in Atlanta, I remember my first stewardship committee meeting. It's where we were talking about people giving to the budget of the church. And I remember the chair of the committee kind of sitting at the head of the table and everyone had these ideas like, what if we have this theme and this logo and this idea? And he just sat and he goes, you know what we need to talk about? We need to tell people how much it costs to pay the electricity bills around here. And that they need to give to the church because the church needs their money. Well... That's true, the church does need your money, and the electricity bills are really expensive, right? And that, those, those are true facts, right? And it's it's expensive to run the electricity today. It's expensive when it's in Austin to keep the, the temperature at a calm. So when you come in, you're not going, oh, it's hot in here. Like what that, it costs us to you know, do that. It, it costs us to have all the different incredible ministries we have in here, many of which don't even aren't for just our congregation. We have youth group, we do have children's ministry, but we also have uh, ESL classes. We have one of the largest recovery gathering places in the city of Austin. Uh, all of this takes place here. And you and your generosity is how that takes place. It's this amazing thing, right? But when you read this passage, the why, even if that gets you to give, right? It's like, yeah, I'm supposed to. My parents taught me to. I'm supposed to give. We pass the basket. It's like every Sunday they're passing the basket. I feel guilty after time. I feel like Thomas is watching me and when the basket goes by, even if he's sitting on the other side of the room. And so like, you know, I'm just going to like give because I'm supposed to give to the church and I'll just sort of give. If that works for you, great, but it doesn't lead to the why, and that doesn't lead to the extravagant generosity we see here. It's not about the needs of the church, and it's not about the duty and response. That wasn't what was motivating them, right? Right? The apostles, we read here, weren't sitting there going, guys, we need them to give, we need their money, so let's find out some way of saying you can't go to heaven unless you like, you know, tell them to give us all their money. That's not what they're doing. There's something else motivating them here and how they do this. Or this is another thing. This is another why that we can sometimes teach. And this one sounds even better, right? We can hear it and go, oh, yeah, that's probably the why. The other why that we see here is, is how we treat and handle the issues of poverty and the poor. We're supposed to give because we're supposed to help poor people, right? Jesus talks a lot about that. And we read this here, and it's like they, 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 no one claimed private ownership, they gave everything away, and there was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're in Austin where if you get off the highway at any point in the city, you are reminded of the need that is around us, and yet we uh, are reading about this time where they're like, they gave in such a way that there was no poverty in the midst of their community. Can you imagine that? And it's like, man, that was the church that had it figured out. Is that the why? I mean, it feels like very spiritual. We're supposed to help the poor. But it doesn't say, look at this, if we look at this again, it doesn't say they saw that there was poverty, so they gave in this amazingly generous way because they were really nice people, and then they gave in such a way that poverty was eliminated in the midst of their community. Poverty was eliminated in the midst of their community, but that doesn't read here in the text like it was the motivation for why they gave. It was this amazing fruit of their generosity. But I don't believe that's the why. I want to take a second for this because that's probably, uh, it's different than how um, probably a lot of us think because it seems like the right answer is I want to help people. That feels like a good enough why. And for most people in our culture, that's why they give, right? We can see an infomercial and there's a malnourished child that comes up and there's music playing in the background and it touches it, it really does, right? And we're like, I wanna help, I wanna help people in need, I see poverty in the world around us, I see homelessness, I see exploitation of people, I wanna give, I wanna be a part of changing the world, I wanna help, I wanna be a good person. But here's why the problem is, is that that doesn't lead to extravagant generosity like we see here. And studies show it doesn't lead to extravagant generosity. It gives, it's some giving, but it's not extravagant. And part of what happens with that, and I just want you to think about this and be open, is that when my motivation, the why is I want to help people in need, there's often still a power dynamic that's at play there, right? It's I who have, or we who have, wanting to help those people over there who my heart really breaks for. And so it sort of rolls down from me unto them, and I stay here, and they stay there. There's kind of a separation that maintains in that. It's what people who study philanthropic, uh, philanthropic giving say is more sympathetically motivated giving, right? And again, people given that, you're like, well, I want to be a good person. I see poverty in the world. I want to help, so I give. But they also see that when that's the why, It doesn't actually lead to extravagant generosity. Just helping people who are in need, I don't believe is the why here. And I want to challenge us that it may isn't supposed to be the why for us. The why that I want you to pay attention to comes in this amazing phrase, uh, kind of middle of the way through we're going to start with that word with, with great power The apostles gave their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want to say that again. That phrase, you can read it. Great grace was upon them all. Now, what does that mean? Grace we sing about. Grace we're going to probably sing about in some of our songs today. We've got a couple more, three more to go after this. So there's a really good chance grace is going to make its way in there somehow. We sing about it. We pray for it. We believe in it. When we hear it, we're like, yeah, I vote for grace. But what does that mean? What does that mean to say great grace was upon them all? Well, the dictionary defines grace as unmerited divine favor. Think about that unmerited unearned undeserved divine favor what I'd like to ask you today is do you believe you could sit there because the book of Acts as we've talked about doesn't end it's 28 chapters written you and I today in our lives are writing Acts 29 can you and I sit here today and say great grace is upon you is upon us You notice that when Jill came up and did the welcome today, she didn't sit there and go, we're going to have a time of confession and there might be four of you that need to confess. She didn't sit there and go, there's like a few of you who are bad apples. The rest of us were really good people but we don't wanna shame you because it's church and we're nice people. And so rather than making you stand and publicly identifying you who have kind of messed up and need to confess today, we're just gonna all pray silently and it's all gonna feel inclusive so that nobody feels like, you know, kind of pointed out or anything else. And and we're just gonna kind of sit here and and we'll all do it. And then we'll hear on behalf of those few people who have done bad things, who aren't as good as the rest of us, that God forgives them. She was like, we're gonna confess. Where is unmerited divine favor found with you what we are as people when we talk about why we need to confess it's not that it's like we're horrible bad people all the time but how life works is this and see if this sounds familiar What it means is to say that we have sin in our lives, brokenness in our lives, is that it means that most human beings are capable of unbelievable kindness and generosity and love and compassion and all this other stuff. And then like seven seconds later, we are unbelievably selfish, gossipy people. And we often have no idea why it changes, right? hypothetically, one of us may be a father in this room who on Father's Day was a little short-tempered as it was a Sunday, and their Sundays are busy, and everything's going on, and and we're getting ready for for this hypothetical person for their kids to go to camp, and they were being really nice, and we'd had a great weekend, and then in the midst of that busy day with everything going on, hypothetically someone might have gotten a little short-tempered and impatient with their kids that morning, and then the next morning, and then the next moment had them bringing down Father's Day cards saying how amazing that that hypothetical person might be and that that person was sitting there going I was 10 minutes before, and if we could forget the little interlude that took place, because I don't even understand why I got impatient about that. My wife's looking at me going, "Why? Are you, what's wrong with you? I mean, the hypothetical person's wife was looking at them going, what is like, going on with you? And you're like, I don't even know. I have no idea what happened where like, this like kindness and then impatience, and then I'm smiling again, and all that, and I would say that hypothetically, that could describe you too. That's what it means to be broken, right? We have these unbelievable, we're these complex people of how we respond and how we act. And a lot of times we're going, I don't even know what's going on within me right now. I don't know why I responded that way. I wish I did so I could just learn the behavior and get it right. And unfortunately, it doesn't work. No matter who you are, this week, this room is full of people That if it was publicly broadcast right now, what we said and thought and felt and the sin we have given into and the ways we have gossiped and the ways we have felt important and kind of a weird goodness when others around us struggle because it makes us look good. And all the different things that we do in our lives, if it was broadcast publicly from up here today, every one of us in this room, starting with me, would hang their head in shame. And God looks at us in faith and says, do you know how I see you? I see my beloved. Paul says that when God looks at us and all of that mixed up stuff, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that has been credited to you. He sees his son or his daughter, and that nothing good, no success you have can make you more valuable to God. And in all the shameful things that we do and think and feel, nothing makes you less valuable to God or makes God turn his back on you. And that is what it means when we say great grace is upon us all. If you're sitting there going, I don't really know how that applies to me, you're really not in touch. And if you're struggling to know how it applies to you, talk to the people that love you. Because usually the ones who are closest to us see our flat sides the most. And if they tell you you don't have any, they're not telling you the truth. Great grace, though. This is not about shame or rules or religious rules. Faith is about the celebration of grace, of freedom, of God saying, you don't have to do anything to earn your worth in my eyes. You are beloved because God declares it to be so. You are somebody with worth and meaning. Great grace is upon us all. And that, friends, is the why. Because when we understand that about ourselves, when we understand that about the nature of God and his amazing grace of how sweet the sound that word is, when we know that that's true, it's really, really, really hard to look at somebody else and go, you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. (laughs) Sympathetic philanthropy and giving and charity is... I will help those in need because I'm a good person and I want to be a good person in this world. Extravagant generosity has a totally different motivation. It has, as God has met me in my need, I get to be a part of God meeting the needs of those around me. It's not sympathetic giving with this power dynamic like this. It's empathetic giving where simply we are being invited to be a part of what God's already done for you. And when you become a part of what God's doing in the world, when you start taking the patterns of Jesus up in your heart, that's where we come alive. That's where we flourish. There is a joy of giving. That is why, and I've said this before at Covenant, and we're not about to ask you for anything, but when it comes to pledging and everything else, and people want to go, well, is tithing before or after taxes? You're like, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the point. This isn't about a rule that God is saying me to do. This is saying God going, this is what it looks like to live like me. This is what it's like to be fully alive. There is a joy of giving. There is a joy of extravagant giving. Come be a part of what I'm doing in the world. Come offer to somebody else what, what I have given to you. And that's where we come alive too. That's the Why? This is what I want to close with what I think this looks like in practice, just to give us ideas, ideas of what to think about. Um, One of the the, the things of how I've come to understand this is through uh, the family that I married into, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law in in, in Wales, and my mother-in-law's sister, which I think makes her my aunt-in-law, but I don't know if that's actually a term, but let's make it a term, okay? Okay because I say we should and I've got the microphone right now and so it's now an aunt-in-law right so my mother-in-law my father-in-law my aunt-in-law her my mother-in-law's sister and my uncle-in-law are all from and where my wife is from this this wonderful little village in in Wales it's a village that was so small Beth didn't own a car till she was 12 because you just walked places it's it's, it's incredible it's one of the mo- it's one of the most amazing places but it, it's a place where uh, there's also, uh, it's not the most wealthy part of Great Britain at all. It's coal mining area. And part of what in this little village my my wife's family uh, was about was that they were known as people who were kind of leaders in the community. Um, I, we saw this week there was a great posting of, of my, my mother-in-law uh, on Facebook. Have I mean, you ever had these horrific moments when a picture's posted on you of social media from like, 20 years ago and you're like how did that make it on like someone posted in the hairdo that you thought had died in the 80s and it's just like come back and everyone sees it she they posted some pictures this week but the pictures were my my mother-in-law with these amazing hairdos Uh, but all the pictures were from photos and articles where where she was uh, giving to those in need Uh, like through the Red Cross or through the Salvation Army. She used to volunteer in the school. It was just a family that was known as being very active and good people and helping people when they saw need. About 25 years ago, though, something changed. And about 25 years ago, they were down in Cardiff. Cardiff's the capital city of Wales. It's about 40 minutes south of this little village where my wife is from. And while they were down in Cardiff shopping one day, they saw... And with new eyes saw the poverty and homelessness that's there. And they decided that they needed to do something about it. And so they responded and that Friday they gathered together some food that they had bought at the grocery store they went out themselves and and they bought some extra food and they made sandwiches and they had extra clothes from their closet and they put them in their car and with no plan and no church and no mission committee driving it and no waiting for the government to do it and no blaming another committee that didn't do what they were supposed to they just got in the car they drove the 40 minutes down they stopped in the middle of a shopping district in the main part of Cardiff and they started going at night and finding some homeless people and offering them food and offering them clothes and hearing their story and starting to pray with them and that then the next Friday night they said well, will you come back and they said yes yeah. so they went to the grocery store they did the whole thing again they went down and 25 years later there has not been one Friday night that a group from this village has not gone down organized by either my mother-in-law or my aunt-in-law her sister they have bought a different car in order to transport more stuff down there. They have spent unknown thousands of pounds through the years, and not one Friday missed. No matter the weather, no matter if it was Christmas Day, no matter if it was Christmas Eve, nothing. When my in-laws come out here to Austin to visit us, they have to get their visa ready, they have to make sure they're packed, and they have to make sure everybody knows who's buying the groceries while they're gone and who's getting the the clothes collection and who's organizing, taking stuff down. And whenever we go to Wales, that's what Fridays revolve around not because there's a rule, not because there's a policy in the family, it's because that's what we do. We spend our days going to the grocery store, spending our money, going back, making the sandwiches, making the tea. If you boil hot water, uh, it's a really good thing and it becomes tea and they give that out, collecting clothes, getting it in the van, taking it down, working with these people, making relationships, praying with them, serving them, and then coming back. We don't do Fridays like, what do you want to do? That's what it is. What changed 25 years ago from when they were people that were good people in their village who raised money for causes when they could, to every Friday night doing this, they met Jesus. They learned the why They learn the why that it's not just about being a good person to help because that is a cap on this kind of giving is motivated by a totally different thing. And they come to understand that great grace was upon them. And there is a joy as they participate and lead this ministry 25 years later that has no logo, no steering committee, no church telling it what to do, no government sponsorship, they just love and give and serve. That's the power of why. This day, this week, I invite you to consider in your mind what the call is upon your life. To know the joy of celebrating grace that is upon you and the joy of giving in response. Amen? Amen. Amen.